I thought about uh, what I wanted to uh, teach tonight, um, particularly thinking about the fact that um, a fair number of people will be leaving tomorrow and a fair number of people will be staying tomorrow. So I wanted to teach something that would be equally relevant and inspiring and uh, appropriate for people staying and people going. And a lot of the questions that have come up in the last two days about staying and going have been, uh, what do you think I should practice in the next month? Uh, who should I practice with for the people who are staying? And how can I continue my practice at home for the people who are going? And so I really wanted to talk, uh, having in mind the, the, the definition of practice, which seems most clear to me, the largest sense of the definition of practice. I think when we're here, we practice in this retreat mode. But I want to talk about when I say I, I am practicing, what I am practicing is um, uh, conditioning my heart to kindness through wisdom or developing wisdom through the practice of kindness. I think that's what we're doing. And we do it in all these different forms, and we do it all the time, here and there. Conditioning wisdom, cultivating wisdom, which will be the source of kindness, and practicing kindness, which becomes the path to wisdom. So I, I had three ways that I wanted to start, and I couldn't decide which of the three, so I decided I would start all three ways. <laughs> and So the first one is I really want to read you a tiny summary of a, uh, of a Jataka tale. The Jataka tales are stories that uh, have to do with fables, that have to do with lives of the Buddha before his lifetime as Siddhartha Gautama before human lifetimes, in fact, in lifetimes in which he was a variety of animals, all of whom were, had incredible capacities of heart and did wonderful feats of kindness. And uh, they've been part of Buddhist lore for millennia. So this is, and in these stories, uh, you can always tell who is the Buddha because uh, he's the animal who's completely noteworthy. A compassionate great ape, a prior incarnation of the Buddha, rescued a man who had fallen into a deep pit in the forest and carried him, back, carried him to the top on his back. Exhausted, the ape said, I need to sleep, so I'll have the strength to help you find the way out of the forest. You watch over me. As he slept, the man, overcome by hunger, thought, I need to kill this ape and eat him. He picked up a huge boulder and threw it with all his might on the sleeping ape. The ape awoke, startled, his eyes filled with tears. You poor man, he said, now you will never be happy. It's a great story, isn't it? It doesn't have to be longer than that. When I said that line, by the way, about he picked up a great boulder, didn't you get frightened? I don't know that they're children's stories. I think they're people's stories. So here's the second of three ways to start, and this is Rumi. Senses and thoughts are like weeds on the clean water's surface. 
the hands of the heart sweep the weeds aside and the water is revealed. When piety has chained the hands of desire, the hands of the heart are free to move. I think that's very much connected to the Jataka tale. When piety has chained the hands of desire, the hands of the heart are free to move. When the mind is made clear through practice, through the different ways in which confusion is kept at bay by all the forms of restraint in mind practice and in life practice, the hands of the heart are free to move. So I'll read one more. Third way to start. This is um, the first verse of chapter six of a book called The Guide to the Bodhisattva's Way of Life. It's written by Shanti Deva, a sixth century Buddhist commentator. And um, it's quite remarkable. I'll read it to you and then you'll see what's remarkable about it. It says, Whatever wholesome deeds, such as venerating the Buddhas and generosity, that may have been amassed over a thousand years will all be destroyed in a moment of anger. So that is a scary thought for most of us who have moments of anger. So I'll tell you how I think about that. Uh, I've decided, probably because otherwise it would, be, would frighten me, uh, that it does not mean that if anger arises, I am back to square one and nothing has happened from all of my practice. My practice didn't mean anything. I've decided that uh, it means that I cannot stop working for the whole rest of my life. That being a human being with a nervous system that's uh, possible, that is uh, disturbed by surprises, I'm likely to be startled. And one of the human responses to startle is anger. And so anger is likely to arise in me as long as I have a neurology that's responsive, which I hope is going to be to the rest of my life. What I think is, uh, I take on as, um, as a condition of practice then is that everything arises. There's not a problem about things that arise. The practice for me is to make a wise decision about what I do with what arises. I think that that's true, and if I look around me, that uh, there isn't a sense of it, certainly in anyone I know, that we can stop working now. We've got it, we're there, finished. There is the lovely sense, in, in reading some of the early scripture stories, that uh, there, are, there have been people in history for whom those taints are uprooted forever. It often says at the end of one of the Buddha's teachings, that so-and-so many people, as they heard him teach, were fully enlightened. And it says, and their hearts, through not clinging, were liberated from taints. I love that line. I think it'd be marvelous to have a heart that was liberated from taints. The other night when Guy talked about um, uh, Ajahn Jumnian, who said he hasn't had a moment of anger in 30 years, I love that. And I think to myself, and what's significant, at least for myself, is that I think of Ajahn Jamnian as having an ongoing, complete, whole life practice. Don't think he sits and meditates every single moment, although he's 
certainly has a meditation practice. But I think that his practice is keeping his heart clear and free of anger. He uses his life, actually. He, he does a lovely little um, exposition of his life, his practice. He'll say something like, if a lot of people come today to the teaching, I'll be really happy because I love to teach. And if nobody comes to the teaching, I'll be really happy because I love to sit quietly and meditate. And if people come and they bring wonderful food for offering, I'll be really happy because I love to eat wonderful food. And if nobody brings any food for the offering, I'll be really happy because I'm a little overweight and it'd be just as well (laughs) not to have any more food. I actually see that as working all the time to be sure that no um, negativity arises in his heart, that he makes a heart big enough all the time to keep whatever is arising sweetened. It's a nice thing to think about that what we're practicing here is we're sweetening our hearts. I think we are. I think it's for, for myself, I think about it as being vital to be able to sweeten my heart because I think often that I am one nanosecond away from um, losing any equanimity that I have. There are things that startle me. Someone calls on the phone and says, this and that isn't working, or mom, I'm unhappy, or there are lots of things that in a moment, regardless of my level of equanimity, certainly will disturb me. I thought about yesterday, I was thinking about what I was going to talk today, and I checked my email. And I had an email from moveon.org. I like to get emails from them. I support them tremendously. I think they're wonderful people. They're doing marvelous things. And I was, I was actually sort of pressed. I needed to be finished with the email. I needed to go on and do another task. I thought to myself, don't open this email, Sylvia. It'll just involve you. Leave it alone. So I opened the email. (laughs) (laughs) I said, well, I'll just look for a minute. (laughs) But it's a mistake, you see, because uh, they, they, first they apologized. They said, this is the first time we're asking for any PAC money in this whole year. But, and then they went on to say some terrible calumny that's happening somewhere or other. And uh, and I became really upset about it. So I, you know, I clicked here and I clicked there and I sent the money. And then I had to write another email to forward it to the. Uh, I didn't forward it to everybody in my list because I don't I really like to do that. But I forwarded it to however many people I thought I could get away with saying <laughs> to them, "Excuse me for forwarding to yet another email, but I just read this and I am so incensed. And I sent money. You send money too, okay?" So then I pushed the send button. And then I thought to myself, I wonder if I could have done that differently. First of all, I could have not looked now. I could have looked later. I thought, is the time going to come when I can read that email and I can then send it off, send the money, and then send it to people and say, please read this email if you have a chance. I am really sad and I'm really concerned. I think you will be too if you read this. I sent money. Perhaps you'll want to do so also. Have a good day. Stay hopeful. Take care of yourself. The one I said, sent said, I am incensed. Do something about this. I would have rather sent that second email, which I didn't send. So here we are. Um, 
You see, one of the great things about being on retreat is you can't send an email. <laughs> and you get to see that the urge to do it, like you think to yourself, this great idea for my job, for my this, for my that, okay. But I can't send an email. I can't make a phone call. And it, but it's so urgent, they have to know right away. Then after a while, something else happens, something else happens. It's not like it's not a good idea, but a more realistic view then takes hold, which is, I'll give the idea when I get home. It's not that urgent, maybe not that important. If it's that important, I'll remember it. If it's not that important, I won't remember it. That the urgency that accompanies a lot of uh, my own impulsive behavior is one of the things I think that becomes, starts to become deconditioned as we practice in this particular mindful way. So I was thinking about saying something like the pra- what I just said before, about I think the practice is not about being on retreat, and it's not even about formal meditation, although I love to be on retreat and I love to teach retreat, and I have a very big confidence and dedication in my own life to formal meditation. I think it's always, for me, appropriate and inspiring to keep that piece of practice, retreat practice, and formal contemplative practice in the wider context of the whole life practice of conditioning the heart to kindness through the cultivation of wisdom and cultivating wisdom through the practice of kindness. And I think about that a lot when people say, uh, in my, uh, how do I do this in my regular life or in real life? And there's a way in which I, I, I'd like you to, I'm inviting you to think about this as regular life pared down. You think about regular life. There are times in the day we get up in the morning, we move around, we sit, we stay still, we move around, we sit, we move around, we sit. We eat, we take care of the needs of the body, we uh, interact with other people. All of the same things that we do here. Here, we do it, our interactions quietly. We do all of those other things, but not elaborated. We do just those things. I think to myself sometimes, what a, what a complication. Um, I think a little bit of... Um, um, the concept of degree of difficulty in a, in a diving competition. You know, if you think, okay, here was my thought. This is like a gym, and we're working on our minds in the gym. When you go to a, a physical gym, you work on your body a little bit. You condition certain muscles so that in the rest of your life, when you go out from the gym, it's not to be able to pick up the weights in the gym. It's to be able to go out in your life and pick up weights or walk on the treadmill in the gym so that you can walk up Mount Tam or walk wherever you want to walk. So it's the gym so that you can do the life. I thought, okay, suppose this is the gym of the mind and the, the work that we're going to have to do in the life that we're practicing here in this gym are the two works that Carol named in two of the lines that she said the other night, which I have been having in my mind and enjoying so much since the one where... Uh, from the Buddha's teaching to the monks in Kasambi, where one of the things we're doing is we are keeping our mind, I am keeping, trying to keep my mind, free of any obsession that obscures clear thinking. It's one piece of what I'm doing. 
Also from the quote from Shanti Deva, I am trying to keep my mind free of the, what he called the deadly, I was thinking deadening, me fantasy that is the root of all suffering. And I was thinking in comparative gyms, I think this being on retreat is actually, uh, being in life is actually harder than being on retreat. Sometimes people think that being on retreat is, uh, is hard. Uh, I remember when I first began, I thought it was hard because I had a rigorous schedule and sitting and walking. It seemed to me every time I'd just walk two steps, it would ring again the bell and I'd have to go sit again. And I, I had to eat a diet I wasn't used to. I had none of the uh, relationships that I was used to having support me. I thought being on retreat was hard. And uh, I told it to a friend of mine after I was back. This is 25 years ago and people didn't know so much about meditation. I was a little showing off about what an outward bound experience I'd had. And uh, so I was telling about all the rigors of early up and in the morning and staying up late at night and how it'd been so hard, all of those facts of the retreat. And he said, that doesn't sound bad to me. So the thing that I get, he says, I can't believe you sat alone two weeks with your mind. And actually, that's a big difficulty. You, you know how difficult it is to sit for a month with your mind. I think we, what we do here, trying to condition the heart to kindness through wisdom, to tolerance, to patience, is the same thing that we have to do on the outside, but the degree of difficulty out there is harder. It's like diving competitions. You have an easy dive where the degree of difficulty is a one. So even you get a nine on the performance of the dive. It's not the same as you do a three and a half triple gainer backflip. The degree of difficulty is four and a half and you get a five on it. You still come out ahead. I think it's really hard to live in the world. I think we're really fortunate to have retreat practice every once in a while so we can come and fine-tune our skills for doing a whole life. But I think it's the whole life that's the practice. You know, I I was thinking about the fact that uh, the Buddha actually didn't uh, teach meditation very much. For the most part, he went from here to there and there to there and told people his vision of how things were and the truth about the the arising of suffering and the end of suffering. And in large measure, people got it. I, I love those suttas in which many people were spontaneously enlightened. I keep thinking that that, that really is such a, um, an extraordinary um, inspirer of my own practice. I think, you know, there's a precedent for all of a sudden all of what hinders clear seeing falling away in a moment of complete clarity. I sometimes think that this is my own complete uh, fantasy. There's certainly no commentary that says this. But I have this fantasy since the mindfulness sutta with instructions is relatively rare among suttas. Here are really instructions for how to do it. That at some point the Buddha, as a pedagogical uh, fallback position or a pedagogical decision, 
said, you know what, I'm going from place to place and I'm teaching all these people and some people are getting it and some people aren't. So for those people who aren't getting it just by hearing it, here's a sutta, here's the instructions for how to practice it and I'll break it down bit by bit. You can pay attention here and here and here and here. So sometimes I think it's remedial wake up, the, the mindfulness sutta. Because by and large the Buddha taught rules for life. There's that wonderful quote that somebody used the other day. Looking very deeply at life as it is right now, this is the Buddha speaking. Looking very deeply at life as it is right now, the person dedicated to awakening dwells in stability and freedom. The wise person calls someone who knows how to dwell in mindfulness the one who knows the better way to live alone. I think what the Buddha primarily taught was the better way to live. And I see that uh, in a parallel, so clearly, in two parallel teachings uh, that I just this week thought, I'll make two charts and I'll set them up right next to each other. Two parallel teachings about guidelines for how to live a life. So on one side of the page, I wrote down the Eightfold Path. You pass it each time you go down past that prayer wheel. Wise understanding, wise aspiration, wise speech, wise action, wise wise livelihood, wise effort, wise mindfulness, wise concentration. The, The list that I wrote on the right side of the page was uh, a list of the training program of the Buddha in prior incarnations, the list of the perfections of the heart that the Buddha is said to have perfected in full that enabled him to experience his enlightenment. The list is generosity, morality, renunciation, wisdom, patience, energy, truthfulness, determination, loving-kindness, and equanimity. And I wrote them as parallel lists next to each other so I could look at both of them, because I think that they are cornerstones of what the Buddha taught. Really, the path to liberation, through the path to wisdom, to liberation, through um, attention to the heart. I actually thought about the, uh, the, uh, the notion that the, the, that the Buddha to be needed to have those heart perfections completely perfected before his enlightenment. And I thought about that for a while because you think, well, after enlightenment, certainly uh, imperfection would not arise. But then I was enjoying thinking about his having perfected them over eons and lifetimes, and that that uh, experience um, under the uh, under the bow tree, the, the in the in the legendary evening in which he is completely enlightened, was his PhD orals or his uh, defense of his thesis that uh, uh, he had to have it all down right and understand it, and then he had to come and defend it against all odds. I thought about it. I thought if it was his PhD orals that he would have written a PhD um, in which what he proved was that the end of suffering is a possibility, that he offers that as a thesis and then has to defend it against um, 
his tester. So I put those two uh, lists next to each other because they're really lists of way to live, ways to live a life. And I looked at them, and I wanted to tell you a little bit about each list separately and where I think the lists completely overlap. I think they completely overlap to begin with. They're how to live a life in order to have the wisdom that this is how to live a life. Really, it's to begin where the fruit of wisdom would end. But they're a little bit different in the stories of each of them. So I thought I would look at them differently and then see um, which piece speaks to me most about where they meet each other. I actually think we are doing uh, all of them all together. Even here, when we think to ourselves, probably, I'm going to meditate. Well, now I must be doing that path, that piece of the Eightfold Path, those three pieces of right effort, right mindfulness, right concentration. That's what I'm doing here, because here I am here. And those are the three path parts that are classically seen as the mind development parts. Of course, we begin every day by chanting the precepts together. And by, in essence, saying aloud and with each other, these are the principles of nonviolence, of non-harming, of goodness, with which I align my, myself. This is the way that I want my heart to express itself. This is what I'm doing with this practice. It's not a plain ritual to start the day. It's really an incliner of the mind in the direction of where it can rest. Even as I look at that list, this is true actually of both lists, but let's start with the Eightfold Path list. I look at the list and it seems like eight discrete things. And even, even so, in the commentaries, they're divided into the path parts of wisdom, understanding and aspiration, the path parts of morality training, of sila, of right speech, right action, right livelihood and the path parts of mind development, effort, mindfulness, concentration. But it seems to me that they're a great hologram, that there isn't any part of that path that isn't intimately connected with all the other parts, that it wouldn't be possible really to say, uh, I don't want to develop all eight parts of the path. I think I'll just take on right speech. Couldn't really take on right speech unless you were mindful about what you were speaking and mindful about what the intention of your heart was motivating the speech, mindful of its impact on the person or persons you were speaking to. You couldn't be really mindful unless you had a degree of concentration present because then there wouldn't be real mindfulness. If you really were going to do right speech, you have to really constantly be uh, attentive to right effort developing in the mind those wholesome mind states that express themselves in kind and wise and gentle speech and uh, putting out of the mind or keeping out of the mind those mind states that aren't conducive to wise and wholesome speech. You would need to be doing the mind training part. You would, you would be doing all of it out of an understanding that to do unright speech would be to cause suffering in the world and to cause suffering in yourself as well. So it would come out of right understanding and it would come out of the right, right aspiration as well. 
to operate out of non-greed, not harming, non-confusion. There isn't any part of that path that isn't part of intimately involved with the rest of it. It's lovely to parse it apart into those eight parts because then you really can focus on one or on the other. And for training purposes, it's a lovely thing to do and really can say, and people have. Uh, I'm going to take on the practice of uh, right speech for the next uh, month and really bring attention to it. It's a wonderful practice to do. So there's a value to putting them all apart. I think there's also another value in seeing that they are all reflections of each other. And if I were to be developing right speech, really, all of the other parts would be developing and maturing at the same time. If I were doing another part, the, the possibility of my expressing myself wisely in speech would be enhanced. I think it's actually a non-linear uh, path. When you write it, you write it in, as if it's a, a line going from uh, one to eight. I think it's more like a circle or more like a spiral. I think actually maybe a spiral is a, is the, a good characterization that uh, it keeps on going, everything connected to everything else, and deepens uh, and comes around to the same understanding but in a deeper way, as, for instance, my understanding of suffering is increased, I'm more careful about what I say. As I am more aware of the possible ways in which I could hurt someone by what I say, and more attentive to what the intention is behind what I say, I'm more careful than I think I was before I began to practice, or even 10 years ago, or five years ago. I hope I'm more careful now than a year ago. I remember once a conversation that I overheard. Um, you know how you have, all of you have jobs on this retreat. I had a job on a retreat once, folding dish towels in the corner of the teacher's dining room. And I, the conversation amongst the teachers that day at lunch was, what motivates your practice the most these days? So here I am, quietly folding and eavesdropping as hard as I can. And everybody's saying different things. And one of my teachers, a person I very much admire, said, I would like to have a, a deeper and more profound understanding of suffering. And at the time, I, I really didn't understand that very well. I thought, I was actually hoping to lessen my perception of suffering in the world and not deepen it. But in, in fact, uh, what happens is suffering lessens, but my perception of suffering increases. The awareness that I have of the way in which the fabric of experience is shot through with dukkha really conditions for me uh, a, a much greater sensitivity to not adding to it. There are two uh, teachings called Hiri and Otapa, and they mean moral dread and moral shame, moral shame and moral dread. And together they mean the awareness that any action that we do 
might cause suffering. And the twin realization that any action that I do is the karma of the whole rest of time spreading out forever and ever and who knows what rippling patterns. And what it conditions in me when I think about it, it it helps me think about that in terms of restraining me from impulsive behavior. Think about uh, anything I do could cause suffering. I know that James taught the teaching of the Buddha to Rahula the other night. Think before you do something. Think during you do something. Think after you do something. Was that for my benefit or the ben- and the benefit of all beings? And if not, before or during or after, fix it. I think to myself uh, how much my own experience of the bliss of blamelessness, which James mentioned the other night, feeling okay about myself, depends on either doing it right to begin with or fixing it afterwards. And I think that's a lovely thing about human beings, that we feel better when we fix it afterwards. I love it that there's an, a, a, a spontaneous moral inventory machine somehow here that keeps track of mistakes that I may make accidentally, uh, not by intention, unaware. Uh, and that when I'm sitting quietly, it will suddenly say to me, you shouldn't have ended that telephone call so abruptly. That person still wanted to talk. You should have hung in another few minutes. You knew that. And uh, it's dismaying to have my conscience talk to me later and tell me what I didn't do. But it's also quite wonderful to be able to say, okay, I hear you. I'll make a phone call. I'll apologize. I'll fix it up. I think it's a wonderful thing. I think it's true of all of us. It's not true uniquely of my heart. I think there's a moral inventory apparatus that's part of human beings that's quite a wonderful part of us. And that this practice conditions awareness of that apparatus. And the awareness of it deepens my understanding of how how easy it is to cause suffering and enhances my desire not to do it anymore. So it's, it's a great spiral. We're all doing it all the time, not only the formal taking of the precepts here and living in a precept-vowed community where we can trust everyone to keep their space, to keep their stuff, to let us keep our stuff, to not be in any way intrusive on another person. There's a wonderful line in the Metta Sutta, it's, uh, the line that I've been thinking about on and off in the last day or so. Some of the lines recirculate in me and I suddenly think, now that is the best line in the whole sutta. So since yesterday I'm thinking that the best line is early in the sutta before it even says, may all beings be happy. It says about how to behave um, if you really want to. Uh, this, is, this is what should be done by those who are skilled in skilled in goodness and who know the path of peace. And then it says a number of things. And then one of the sentences is, letting, doing not the slightest thing of which the wise would later reprove. I love that sentence. That's a great sentence. I think to myself, I understand that as, uh, when I think about who are the wise. The wise is my own moral inventory that lives in there. And it will later reprove if I've made a mistake. I would like to not have it have to correct me quite as much as it does. 
But even not, so we do it here in the taking of the precepts, we do it in living in a vowed community where we keep our own space and our own stuff and make everybody else feel safe. And we do it as we meditate by keeping ourselves safe, by not going down those paths of the mind that lead us into confusion when we can see it happening and we don't do it. When we can restrain ourselves from rushing off with this indignation thought or running away with this lust thought or running in, rerunning the movie of who betrayed me for yet another time and, stay, and say to ourselves instead, you know, I am now taking the precept of non-harming. I will not harm myself with these unskillful ways of thinking. I'll be right here. I think we are doing precept practice when we are being mindful and not harming ourselves, keeping the mind balanced and non-reactive, mind at peace. I think it's a precept practice. It's interesting about the precept practice, too. One more thing about the precept practice and talk a little bit about paramita practice. Sometimes at the beginning of retreats and during the retreats we come in, we take precepts and then every morning and uh, we'll probably do them again just before we leave. Whether or not you formally take the precepts in your life outside of here, it seems to me clear that it's not all of a sudden new rules when we come in here and say, now I'm taking the precepts. I remember I used to feel a little awkward in the beginning of my practice, uh, as if in making those vows for harmlessness in all those ways, uh, I was suddenly taking on a vow to do something that it, maybe the implication was that I hadn't been that way before or wanted to be that way before. I thought to myself, hey, I already think that. But I'm assuming that we all already think that, otherwise we wouldn't be here. But it's a wonderful thing to say it out loud together and make that dedication together. It's a wonderful thing to know that I'm in a room with people who feel just as I am, who agree with me and with the Buddha, that peace is possible and I am determined to live it starting with me. So the paramita list. Paramita list, like the Eightfold Path list, is, I think, a hologram. It's got ten different things in it, generosity, morality, renunciation, wisdom, patience, energy, truthfulness, determination, loving kindness, and equanimity. But I think, again, just like the Eightfold Path is a circle and a hologram, I think that the paramita path that they are all permutations of uh, kindness, all permutations of goodness. You can take any one of them. Think, for instance, about generosity. Think about generosity as you go and you give someone a gift. This is a generosity. Give them a gift of a thing. But I think about if you live in a community that understands morality and you know it, that everyone has given each other the gift of feeling safe. Safety is a tremendous gift. If I think to myself that I am practicing truthfulness, then I am giving everyone a gift of a level playing field. I'm not keeping any secrets to myself so that I have extra stuff that I, they don't have. Give everybody equal share of opportunity. If I practice patience, I give everybody the gift of a little bit of calm in the middle of a hurried life. 
think about all the times my favorite opportunities to practice patience is if you come to the dry cleaner and you have a slip that says your sweater is going to be ready at, on Tuesday. And it's Tuesday, and you come with a slip to the dry cleaner. And the dry cleaner looks and does that machine, comes around and around, checks your name. It's not there. Says, sweater isn't there. There are a number of people standing around, and you have a, a, a ticket that says the sweater is supposed to be there. And you have a, a, a moment in which everyone is waiting for what you're going to say. And you say, oh, that's all right. I'll come back tomorrow. And everybody ha. Ah. Because the truth is, you could have had a little uproar and said, it says here on the ticket. But it could say on the ticket, till kingdom come. The sweater is not there. It's not going to do any good. It's just going to upset everybody. It's, it's actually an act of wisdom to have patience. It's not going to do anybody any good, especially you. For making an uproar. You have to go to another dry cleaner after that for having made the uproar. It's <laughs> Actually, it's an act of wisdom. One of the things that I began to think about as I was getting ready to give this talk tonight is that patience is, is one of the less... Um, it's one of the less sexy of the paramitas. You know, generosity, why you really could tell great generosity stories or great truthfulness stories or great loving kindness stories. Patience is a little bit frumpy, you know, that uh, it doesn't, it doesn't have panache about it. But I thought to myself that just the mood I was in today, patience seemed to me so synonymous with wisdom that uh, the ability when things, it's always the ability to take things as they are and say, that's how they are. They aren't other than this. They'll be other than this when they're other than this. But at this moment, they're just like this. It's fundamental dharma. It sounds to me exactly like the liberated mind. It's like this. It's not other yet. It can't be there. It'll be other when it's other. When the conditions are ripe, it'll be other. I thought about the ways in which these uh, lists overlap each other. And I think they overlap each other completely, really, because they're all about resisting the impulse to act impulsively and thinking. There's There's a character on one of the children's TV programs. I've forgotten. Oh, it's somebody named Blue. Blue's Clues. Blue's Clues, I hear a little bit, yes. Uh, Blue's Clues, apparently very good. I think Blue is an animated dog or a person who has an animated dog. Or, anyway, <laughs> I, I, I personally have not seen Blue give a clue, but I heard the story. <laughs> I heard the story from my daughter who told me that they had been doing a tremendous art project, she and Harrison and Honor, and, um, and they had uh, crayons all over the place and papers all over the place. And all of a sudden, somebody, not looking what they were doing, knocked over a glass of milk. All the crayons are wet, all the papers are wet, the milk is pouring off the table. And she said, she sent me a little email to let me know about this. And she said, I must have looked dismayed. And she said, because Harrison said, uh, Mom, 
He said, stop, breathe, <laughs> think. <laughs> and apparently that's one of Berlou's clues. So I think that's great that kids are learning stop, breathe, think. What we are doing here is we are stopping and breathing and thinking. And thinking about, is the way I live, the way I want to live, is it conducive to happiness? See, the very great, very great fundamental truth is that however much one might think of patience as frumpy or as virtue as um, old-fashioned, uh, I remember my, my, my friend and my teacher, Joseph Goldstein, saying nobody says restraint anymore. Restraint is kind of taken on the, 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 the sound of a Victorian word. But they're lovely words, restraint, patience. That they're really the source of happiness. All of those virtues and the cultivation of them and the conditioning of the heart to them, both in life and as you sit. It's the same instruction. As you sit and walk here, as you interact on your job, as you go through the days, every moment, including the interior moments, are moments of choosing out of kindness the most wholesome response to the moment. In an interaction with someone on a job, an interaction tomorrow when you're out in the world, in an interaction with yourself internally, you think to yourself, I could continue to practice or I could kind of just spend the afternoon, or I could, I'll just think this one vendetta over one more time in my mind, (laughs) and then I'll give it up, or I could not. I mean, that's a kindness. It always turns out to be a kindness to yourself to choose the path of restraint. There's just much less fallout from it. There's nothing to clean up from afterwards. I really want to go back to the quote that I began in the beginning. I really hope that by presenting both of those paths was really made the point about we are doing the conditioning of the heart to kindness through wisdom and the cultivation of wisdom through kindness as we sit here in this most quiet contemplative practice and as we go out in the world. It looks different, but really it's the same. So I want to read the Rumi again. Senses and thoughts are like weeds on the clean water's surface. The hands of the heart sweep the weeds aside and the water is revealed. When piety has chained the hands of desire, the hands of the heart are free to move. And then I want to tell you one more Jataka tale. The hands of the heart are free to move. For me, is an expression of the fact that when the hands of the heart are free to move, what can, what ensues is a condition of happiness. That that really is a, a way of talking about liberation. 
This is called the monkey who would not give up. The Buddha in a prior incarnation as the chief of a band of monkeys steadfastly protected his tribe from being discovered and harmed by the people who lived downstream on the Ganges from the huge and wonderful mango tree in which they lived. One day a mango fell from the tree and was carried by the river to the bathing site of King Brahmadatta, who, enchanted by the taste of the fruit, traveled with a search party and found the tree. The monkeys overheard the men planning to kill them and eat their meat, as well as the mangoes. They were terrified. The chief of the monkeys, determined to save them, tied a reed to his foot, leapt across the river, and barely managed to grasp a branch on the other side. Run across the reed, he called, and over my back. Eighty thousand monkeys ran to safety. <laughs> the monkey chief's back was broken. King Brahmadatta held him as he died and asked who he was. The monkey said, I am their king, and I love them. I do not suffer, since by my death my subjects are free. Remember, it is not your sword that makes you king, it is love alone. Thereafter, Brahmadatta ruled with love, and his people were happy ever after. The person dedicated to awakening dwells in stability and freedom. The wise person calls someone who knows how to dwell in mindfulness the one who knows the better way to live alone. So we'll sit. This talk was given by Sylvia Burstein at Spirit Rock on February 27, 2004. It is an offering of the Dharma Seed Audio. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.